very warm welcome from Poet in the City to this event called Poetry and Choices. My name is Vivian Rush. Poet in the City is absolutely delighted to be working with the LSE in this very exciting brand new literary festival, Literary Weekend, to add to London's literary scene. We think it is great and very important that the arts and social sciences should meet, especially here in this beautiful new academic building. And we'd like to thank the LSE for asking us to schedule three events this weekend, of which this is the second. For those of you who don't know us, Poet in the City is a registered charity committed to attracting new audiences to poetry, making new connections for poetry, and raising money to support poetry education, particularly through the placing of poets in schools. We also organize poetry events all over London in venues ranging from the National Portrait Gallery to the Imperial War Museum and literally from the Houses of Parliament to the Royal College of Psychiatry as well as at another, a number of other colleges across London. Most recently we started putting on poetry events at a brand new arts complex, King's Place near King's Cross, which is also the new home of the Guardian and Observer newspapers. We've taken part in other arts and literary festivals, such as the City of London Festival and, most recently, Jewish Book Week. Part of Poet in the City's brief is to reach out to those who have never attended poetry events before or only rarely done so. Poet in the City's New Audiences Initiative, launched in spring 2007 and managed by a committee of younger Poet in the City volunteers, has been very successful at doing this including attracting many other under-25s, as well as introducing new poets and performers of poetry to existing audiences. Our latest figures show that, on average, 24% of our audiences have never attended a poetry event before, and another 27% rarely. But enough about that. Straight to this evening's poetry. It is with very special pleasure that I welcome this evening's first poet, John Mole, who is Poet in the City's Poet in Residence. As well as writing poetry for adults and children, John is a freelance journalist and lecturer, an experienced poetry broadcaster for BBC Radios 3 and 4, and an accomplished jazz clarinetist. Among poetry prizes to his credit are an Eric Gregory Award, a Chol Mondeley Award, and a Signal Award. He has been writer-in-residence at Magdalen College, Cambridge, and the poet Poetry Society's Poet in Residence to the City of London. John also taught for many years and worked both in America and in Britain and still often returns to schools to lead poetry workshops and to give readings. Most recently, John has written the libretto for a community opera which will be performed in St. Albans Cathedral. Um, there are a number of performances in May. So without further ado, please welcome John Mole. Thank you very much. Um, when Poet in the City appointed me um, as their residential poet, which was ten years ago now, um, I couldn't help wondering what my dad would have said. Um, his father returned to this country in 1902 after a flaming youth in Arizona working for a mining company to start a family and to found what was to become the chartered accountancy firm of A.C. Mole & Sons. My father and his brother both went into the firm when their time came, but in due course, I didn't. 
wasn't fiscally suited. Um, these two poems, the first and the last in a sequence of sonnets, are a brief portrait of my grandfather as I remember him. And then I suppose, here comes the choice, um, my version of The Road Not Taken, an apologia and a statement of gratitude. Upright. My father's father played the bones with a fine, unmusical frenzy as I picked out slow coach tunes on his upright. From one knee to the other, the click-clack rhythm galloped ahead to the old story of his roughneck days, how he had ridden bareback in Arizona with Dan Cody. My aunt had become his second wife and disapproved. Upright for her meant bone stays, side saddle, knees together, circumspect, the local life he'd settled to, becoming mayor, the directorships, the municipal medal. The way it was. No choice. You went into the firm because the firm was waiting for you. That's the way it was. Why allowed no answer other than because. Because I say so. It's your turn. And so my father did as he was told, making the best of it against the grain. He buckled down. He wouldn't ask again. The dreams I know he had were put on hold. They held for life and never let him go. The doctor he had hoped to train to be made of his practice of accountancy a curative release. To him I owe all I'm still learning from a selfless man who let me go my way, be what I am. Um, writing a poem, I think, is a continuous process of choice. And I recognize exactly what the poet W.S. Graham, in describing this, meant when he said, I have achieved some way of pleasure in putting the words together. The best is the world they put me in when I am choosing and discarding them. Uh, this next poem, then, called The Catch, is, I suppose, about my experience of that world. The Catch. Out on an island in the park, the trees seem dense with herons in a winged extension of whatever branch they choose. A high-rise occupancy, gathered in the early morning sun. But here on the lake's stone rim, a soloist is tuning for his catch. He takes a step or two, then pauses like a heartbeat missed, or, bronze legs riveted, becomes the statue of himself. His gaze is razor sharp, intent on what the water holds, the stillness of its depths, or sudden surface movement, and the certainty that nothing less than singular attention serves. Quick light is dancing on the lake, its arabesque a sequined measure, but even a slight distracted glance aside would be the risk no artist takes. Learn from this heron at the edge, who holds his own in concentrated thought, then strikes the center. Extraneous knowledge honed to instinct, so that what gets caught without the blinking of an eye is chance made palpable 
The choice is now um, whether to lie back and take it or make the decision not to take it anymore. The poem that I'm going to read now was my response to watching Question Time some years ago when a patrician male politician patronized a young female campaigner in a discussion on nuclear disarmament. After her eloquent and carefully argued case, he came back at her with, now, let me educate you. Now, I'm sure you'll recognize the nursery rhyme which threads its way through the poem. You may not identify the panelists, but I'd be quite willing to do so afterwards. <laughs> Less than sixpence. Now let us educate you. Let us, let us. Cracking the crust, this rare politico's a brave one. A home-baked, brilliant blackbird, baked, beaked, and gaping far beyond his pastry. Listen to the facts now. Listen to me. God save the queen in her parlour. God save the counting house forever and the silver spoon, the gold plate, and all those words which are good enough to eat. Nobody loves peace more than he does, of course, but he'd peck off any nose to spite her face, poor maid, alone in the garden, with nowhere to hide when the world ends. It's the balance she doesn't understand, the courtly dance of money and power. Oh, listen, listen, if only she'd hang out reason with the clothes. Things are not simple. They are history's manifold example. You can't just wash them and hope. Oh, keep faith with the faith we keep, if not for you, for the sake of your children. Of course we hope it will never happen. That little white shirt on the line which waves at the future, take it in, take it in, it signals surrender. The skull and bones could not be more fatal. So we come into your homes tonight and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, telling you why and when and how, until you understand. We have baked the pie, and now you'll eat it. Your destiny must be to go on listening to reason, its song of so much less than sixpence. But no, this is wrong, wrong. Switch off, walk out in the garden. There's time yet to hang out a whole wardrobe, why not? And remember, a pocket full of rye is something. Plant each grain of it, then let the black Um, it's nearly time to choose the next Poet Laureate, so here's a little history. Uh, when Wordsworth was in London to be presented to Queen Victoria as Poet Laureate in 1845, his friend Samuel Rogers offered to lend him a court suit. He accepted, even though Rogers was considerably shorter. This is entirely true. Forty years later, when Tennyson was appointed, he appeared before the Queen in the same suit. <laughs> After Tennyson, there was a four-year gap before the appointment of Alfred Austin. Austin is mainly remembered for the lines on the illness of Edward VII. Across the wires, the electric message came, he is no better, he is much the same. <laughs> now, I chose to put this poem into a collection for children, but several grown-ups uh, seem to have enjoyed it. Um, so, so here goes. The Songbirds. When William Wordsworth heard the news, just one thing caused him sorrow. He didn't have a smart dress 
His fame had led Her Majesty to make him Poet Laureate. But I haven't got a smart dress suit, he cried. Who has one? May I borrow it? <laughs> of course, said Samuel Rogers, who was a full six inches smaller. Samuel was a poet too, but William was taller. So he squeezed into that suit and paid the Queen his visit. And she was too polite to say, that isn't your suit, is it? <laughs> a songbird in a borrowed suit, could any sight be sorrier? But Wordsworth was a famous man, and she was Queen Victoria. <laughs> when Wordsworth died, Lord Tennyson took over as PL, and at his own investiture wore Samuel's suit as well. He wore it as a, great, as a tribute to that late great man of letters, but as he wasn't quite so tall, it fitted him much better. So when her proud new laureate walked through the royal door, the queen was too polite to say, I've seen that suit. <laughs> when Tennyson died, the next PL was a man called Alfred Austin. He wore his own suit on the day, though we don't know what it cost him. We don't know either much about his verse. It's been forgotten. No doubt the queen thought it was good, but some say it was rotten. <laughs> and the last poem I'm going to read um, is about somebody I began with the sonnet so I'll end with the sonnet um, it's about someone who in the last couplet of the poem makes a choice um, and I'm completely impartial about whether it's the right or the wrong one as we'll see I also happen to be um, a devotee of a certain period of American movies if anyone shares my enthusiasm, um, you may recognize some of the references, but don't worry if you don't, because um, it's really all leading up to the cup. Dream Girl. I was the girl who wrote to Noel Coward, dated Errol Flynn and Edward G. Stiffened her upper lip for Leslie Howard, brought Clark Gable down on bended knee. Drove around the block with Fred McMurray, rode the Ferris wheel with Orson Wells, told the Hayes Committee not to worry, promised Walter Pigeon wedding bells, followed Bogie's hat down every mean street, shared Paul Henry's last two cigarettes, tried in vain to fathom Sydney Green Street, settled George Raft's hash by placing bets. I was the girl who almost lost her head but fell asleep and married you instead. <laughs>
Is that better? Yeah? Slightly. What about this one? What's this doing? That's a light. Right. <laughs> no. Can you hear me now? Is that all right? Yeah? Right. What about that? Is that okay? All right. Okay. Well, we're in business now. Good. Um, so, this book, Silences from the Spanish Civil War, was written because my father fought in the Spanish Civil War. He was a Spaniard and he fought on the Republican side. And um, I'm sure all of you know about the Spanish Civil War, but it, it took place between 1936 and 1939. And um, it started because there was a rebellion in, in the army that tried to overthrow the legitimate democratically elected uh, Second Spanish Republic. And my father made this, this choice to, to fight um, to fight against Franco and, and, and fascism. And he went into permanent exile. So this choice he made as a relatively young man, um, I think he was in his late, I think he was 29 or something like that, affected his whole life because he then, at the end of the war, went into exile and never returned to Spain. He never spoke about, the, he, he didn't speak about the Spanish Civil War and it's because of these silences um, that I started, I became uh, interested in, in learning more about it and it's really the silence that's the inspiration for this whole book. Research. A long gradient, the minute distances to achieve the height to even know what I am searching for, like a moat in the eye, or a speck, a belief, privations. Then I am dangerously close. Then I feel an exhaustion in all my limbs. The very moment I hope to recover what is sincerely gone. And I look at my blistered hands and feet and think, it is this. The next poem, which is called Maestrasco, um, is a Maestrasco is a mountain range um, which spans Aragon and Castellon. Um, very rugged, very um, harsh mountain range. And it's also the site of the retreat of um, the Republican army, a long retreat uh, in 1938. But this poem is also about my father's decision to join the militia and fight against Franco and the generals who did the coup. Maestrasco. The deeper I go in the wind, the more unreal the days of departure, till I reach a lookout point over distant farmhouses, sheepfolds, and see the waterline of the mountain range as if it were part of me, the friendliness and force it exerts on me, my father said goodbye. He joined the militia. Everything is lifted up and dries. It is a long way down from all parched things. The Spanish Civil War um, lasted three years um, and the sequence covers a number of points during the 
about the Battle of the Ebro. The Battle of the Ebro took place at, at a point in the war when, when effectively the Republicans were, you could see the writing on the wall, they were defeated. But this was a last effort to turn the tide of the war in which the Republicans attacked across the Ebro River and there was a battle to, to try and break through and there was a battle that lasted um, almost four months. Uh, and there's, uh, uh, there are a few lines from a song, an old Spanish song, um, which uh, the lines are al alba venid buen amigo, venid a la luz del día, which means come to the dawn, my friend, come to the light of day. Crossing at Mirabet, 1938. The houses rise up before me unexpectedly. I can finally see the valley and the strenuous glimmer that is the Ebro, a ferry under the poplars, no ferryman. There is a changing distance to cover. I listen to the poplars while I'm waiting for the ferry and look across at the climbed streets and abandoning houses. My father sings at the piano. He closes his eyes. Al alba venid, buen amigo. Venid a la luz del día. I am patient till dawn when the soldiers will enter the Ebro to cross to Miravet, holding their rifles high above the water. My father escaped at the end of the war. Uh, he escaped to England. He met my mother in England, and they went together to live in America. And as I say, he didn't return to Spain, but his uh, brother and his sisters remained in Spain. And um, he did go to Morocco and meet his brother, at one of his brother and one of his sisters there. And he could see the coast of Spain from Tangiers. Coastline, 1960. When you see your country for the first time again from another country, turn back to the cafe tables and conversation. Your brother and sister have come from Madrid and Las Palmas to meet you here in Tangiers. They have grandchildren now. There are colonies of seaweed, bottles, fast boats come from there swinging and altering between the two coasts. It is just over the water, the pace of Spain, a long line, an interminable line you walk on every day without stopping in your suit and tie, holding your hat, when you want to go inland, away from the depths of your resolve, those days when the air is clear and fine. And now I'll read um, a few poems from my book, Coastal, from a sequence which is called Zagarit. Um, the book is about uh, my son, Rami. Uh, my husband is Algerian, and um, we adopted Rami as a baby in, in Algeria. And Zagarit, the meaning of the word, it's, uh, it's the plural, it's the ululating cry so it's ululating cries that, that women make at celebrations and in Algeria at weddings you hear that cry it's very piercing, very high pitched <coughs> the mat 
When you first arrived, we put you on a mat with whatever we had to hand, a pillowcase, a shawl. It was June. The shutters were closed to leave out the dazzling heat of Algiers so you could rest. I lay down beside you. You were two and a half months old. Days before, it had been Mouloud, and the fireworks lasted all night. I had imagined you in your cot in the children's home, hearing the explosions. Then there were those roars in the demonstration, tear gas grenades, a depot burning, and smoke that billowed over the whole city. And there were the babies in the other cots who cried every day, each in his own abandonment. For weeks after you came to me, you would sleep with your hands over your ears. I wanted to offer you a kind of quiet here, but I was exhausted already. Just your delicacy and fast, tiny breaths exhausted me. Just the pressure of knowing you were with us at last. But I lay down beside you. I put my face near yours so I could hear each breath. Together we began our search for quiet. What we know. We know where you were born, in the Parnay Hospital at Hussein Bey. We know its courtyard of palm and orange trees, the persistent dust. We know the low white buildings and the intricate passages to wards. We know you were born at 9 p.m. when the drought of traffic still circled round the hospital. We know that in the morning the courtyard turned green and yellow again. My boy, my child, this much we know. Rami. I want to know who cared for him every day on the ward, whose face came close to his on the day shift, the night shift, who held him and washed him in the original motions of love, and the doctor who named him Abdelaziz Rami. Rami. He who aims high, the archer, who pierces the transparent cloud over the mountain, the most arid mountain that ever was, the one who survives, the survivor. It's wonderful how quickly children grow, and in fact, I was watching Rami today play basketball. Wonderful. He's coming up to eight now. But um, when he was at the age when he was crawling, he was quite interested in books in sort of a physical way. So this poem is called What is Written, and it, it is um, think, uh, thinking about um, the idea of, of, of your destiny being written um, so that everything is sort of predestined for you. <coughs> what is written? The way you look at your book Roll round, lie over it, turn numbers of pages at a time, and sit and put your face down to look deeply into the words. Lay your arm across to turn the pages backwards and force your whole body round so you can read the book upside down. Then you squat and lean on both hands as if resting forever on the two sides 
the two open pages given to you at that moment, like something wanting you can only make sense of by turning round and round your socks working themselves off, and then you step on the book in your bare feet sliding across it. I'll just read two last poems. Um, my husband, uh, my husband lost his father when he was three. His father was in the Algerian War of Independence, and also in that war, he lost his uncles and his elder brother. El Atab, 1958. There are also tracts I am not sure of, stones pulled away from the earth, days when the wheat was ready, preparations in farmhouses for war, and all the time the simple, sincere light across the plain that stops short, a soldier praying in an open field, your father, a child no older than you, sitting on a wall, legs swinging. Soon his own father would be gone, and the war would take his uncles and brother, forgiveness and fear. Forgive me for not knowing those days. Your father brings them to you when he says your name and leans down to kiss you. You are from this country. And I'll end with a poem called Zagarit, which is that very high-pitched cry. I ask them how they do it, how they make it. The yu-yu cry, Zagarit, memorable and elemental, that could carry ships, lift a child, celebrate a revolution. The women are here in beaded dresses, and they dance upstairs in a separate room. They dress you three years old in a white satin shirt and a crimson waistcoat with gold embroidery. You are wearing white satin, billowing trousers, and pointed slippers, gold and crimson, just like the waistcoat, and a crimson and gold cap over your curls. Your father, his cousins, our friends, are waiting downstairs, and you keep taking off the cap, and we keep putting it back on. And when everything is ready, the lace frill on your shirt, we all stand at the top of the stairs, and the women begin to cry that piercing, throbbing, continuous cry that is the transformation of pain, or the creation of pain, to make room for joy. And I take you by the hand, and the women follow you downstairs into the bright company. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for that. Our next poet um, comes from Wales, Robert Minhinic grew up near Bridgend and studied at Aberystwyth in Cardiff. As well as a poet, he is an active environmental campaigner, campaigner and in fact I understand co-founded Friends of the Earth in uh, Cymru in Wales. 
He's a prize-winning essayist, as well as poet, having published the collections Watching the Fire Eater and Bad Lands, which were essays about post-communist Albania, California, and the state of Wales and England, and Green Agenda, essays on the environment of Wales. His book, To Babel and Back, won the 2006 Wales Book of the Year Award, and his debut novel, Sea Holly, 2007, was shortlisted for the 2008 Ondaatje Prize. As a poet, Robert has won an Eric Gregory Award and three forward poetry prizes for best single poems. He has published a very large number of poetry collections from Thread in the Maze to After the Hurricane. And in 2003, very interesting, pub interestingly, published a book of his translations from the Welsh, The Adulterer's Tongue, an anthology of Welsh poetry in translation. His latest collection is King Driftwood. Please welcome Robert Minhinick. I threw a dart and it won me my wife. I fired a rifle and the prizes were my children. I put a coin in the slot and lost everything. At night my caravan rocks on its bricks. By morning the sand has built a reef around the door. In the darkness I hear its grains on the glass. That's a language I am learning. Brother, sister, do you hear me? I am learning the vocabulary of sand, repeating it in the nights when there's not a sound but sand, explaining how one day all this will be its empire, and how sand will have taken back everything we have won from it. And I believe it's true. I bet on the white car, and it came in first. I bet on the black car, and it came in first. I bet on the red car, and now there is only sand in my pockets. Evenings, I'm in the arcades. Penny Falls, video poker. I'm there with a gang who always turn up at the same time. We hardly speak, but someone said that down the coast you can play all night and keep on playing through the morning, and there's never need to stop. But this Funland is all rules. I said to the man in the booth, I said, Mister, I got nothing left. I bet the smoke in my mouth. I bet the holes in my belt. Very good holes those were two. So I want to bet myself. I said, I want to wager myself, mister. Do you know what I mean? I asked him. Myself? Go home, he said. We're closing now. He didn't understand how serious I am. I'm nothing in this world if not serious. So I watch the wheel where my children sit in the sky and the carousel where my wife rides her painted horse. I bet on the red and off they went. Any other day the red would have won. Now, 
How faint those voices are above the fair. At night, in the caravan, I lie on the floor. The sand lies on the floor beside me. It strokes my hair. I lie on the caravan floor naked because today I lost my clothes on the Colossus. And the sand whispers to me, I love you, says the sand. Do you understand? It says. Even the sea is silent. I love you, says the sand. Would you like me to tell you a story? And the sand keeps whispering. It puts its tongue into my ear. Did you ever hear, asks the sand, did you ever hear how much gold there is in a mouthful of seawater? That's, that poem is about choices. It's about people who gamble. It's for people who gamble. Any gamblers here tonight? I live in a town that... It, that earns its living from gambling. People choose something and then they gamble on it. They decide it's number 14 or number 27 and they put all their money on it and they lose. War is a choice. This is a war poem. I was in Baghdad and I wrote this about what was going on there it's called the yellow palm as I made my way down Palestine street I watched a funeral pass all the women waving lilac stems around a coffin made of glass and the face of the man who lay within who had breathed a poison gas. As I made my way down Palestine Street, I heard the call to prayer, and I stopped at the door of the Golden Mosque to watch the faithful there. But there was blood on the walls, and the muezzin's eyes were wild with his despair. As I made my way down Palestine Street, I met two blind beggars and into their hands I pressed my hands with a hundred black dinars and their salutes were those of the imperial guard in the mother of all wars. As I made my way down Palestine Street I smelled the white tigress the river smell that lifts the air in a city such as this. But down on my head fell the barbarian sun that knows no armistice. As I made my way down Palestine Street, I saw a cruise missile, a slow and silver caravan on its slow and silver mile, and a beggar child turned up his face 
and blessed it with a smile. As I made my way down Palestine Street under the yellow palms, I saw their branches hung with yellow dates, all sweeter than salams. And when that same child reached up to touch the fruit, fell in his arms. Here's a wonderful choice for a poet. Do you want to write in a language that people understand? Or do you want to write in a language that's just about nobody understands anymore? If you're Welsh, if you're a Welsh poet, I mean in the Welsh language, you might write a poem and you might think it's fantastic and you want to run out into the street and show your neighbours and your friends what you've written your neighbours and your friends don't know what you're talking about they don't read they don't understand Welsh in your own country the language that you speak or thinking or whatever has departed it's gone, it's melted away but you still decide against everything you're going to write in that language that nobody understands you're going to make art that nobody will catch on to I translate from the Welsh. I don't write in Welsh myself. I think everything in English. I'm an English writer, but I translate from the Welsh. Here's a wonderful poem called Inwife um, from a, a, a woman poet called Elena um, Howell. Inwife means um, once, but I've translated it as history. If you want. Um, if you're a Welsh language poet, you also have to find good translators if you want your poetry to be known about. So uh, there is that as well. In wife, history. Once upon a time, in a nameless country, before history was ever written down, there was a king, a king of the dear people, and a queen a queen of the people of horses and goats and her body was like the fold of milk that pours from a pail and his body was tough as tusks and they were married when they were seven years old and they lived together for half a century and raised twelve children and the queen would embroider in her boudoir and the king would send his voice thundering through the forest. And although they could not love one another, she stroked his hair in the eye of her needle, and he touched her breast when he pulled his arrow from a doe. In the end, when the gold and gilt were gone, and the blood rich wine was gone and the silks were gone and the ambassadors gone back to the countries of ginger and indigo 
this king and this queen died and they were buried in the same place she in her cloak of horsehair and he according to the custom of the dear people with antlers dark as iron upon his head and the rain still falls upon their grave the second one about uh, Baghdad you want to write about you know the question is do you choose to write about a place like this and I adopted that challenge not sure if the poem works but uh, it's called The Tooth it's about me finding a tooth in uh, the Amaria bunker in your head I whisper a tooth blue as a cinder and I ask coward whose pain is it anyway your cells are a blizzard your mind a rag book yet I dream you into growth luscious as papaya flesh around my black seed why this need to condemn I have felt your bones gasp in their foundry and at night you do not know but I have heard your blood like a bench of silversmiths pause at its work then continue once I dreamed you inside a laboratory when you, st when you stared at a kernel of phosphorus until it sprouted fire and thirty years later ached in your skull as you stooped in the shelter of Amaria to pick the tooth of a child like a rice grain from the ash we've been together such a long time now and my roots go all the way down and the last poem my idea is to write about where I come from and who would want to write about where you come from apart from the poet there have not been many poets who come from Paul on the south coast of Wales nobody in, uh, in English a couple in Welsh very poor Welsh so this is a really good introduction to, to Paul It's called After the Hurricane. And there's um, a couple of words in there. Tumpath Tumbrathon means the sand dune of Tum, the Briton. And Sewin, I think, means a young salmon. After the hurricane blew through my head, I knew things had to change. That silence was no longer a defense. So walking on the eastern shore, I asked myself what I was for. And on that beach I picked... And on that beach, I picked the fire of the green root of sand fire 
its oils and our thoughts turning to supper of sea bass or the silver side of sewing laid in tinfoil in the pit I'd made on a griddle over ingots of driftwood white hot in seconds those firestones black with armfuls of the bladder rack like strings of jalapenos spread to dry so that the fire spat purple as tram sparks its smoke assailed to the northeast and as night fell we saw spectres in that auditorium our shadows in the salty flame giants as the blaze grew higher crowned with pluckings of samphire and then behind us on the dune another light appeared and soon another further up the bay and voices if we listened carefully some soft some crazed in the darkness where the fires blazed white lightning drinkers under the flickering meniscus of the dog star and speed freaks midnight histrionics mad as sand fleas round the beacon on the summit of Tumbrathon ambassadors of turbulence whose private language yet made sense then deep in the dupits of the warren the nightjar's prophylamium to a new moon true voices all in the dark's confessional admitting the imperative that how we speak is how we live and even our deliriums are more than debris of our dreams so when I heard the hurricane I guessed it might not come again but what it offers is the choice to use or not a tiny voice and watch it flaring like a spark in Duneland's Neolithic dark and maybe the next morning find the fire has left a frost behind much indeed for that. And our final poet tonight is Joe Shapcott, one of the UK's best loved poets. She was born in London, was an undergraduate at Trinity College, then a Harkness Fellow at Harvard University. She is professor at Royal Holloway College in London, where she teaches on the MA in Creative Writing. And she's also a visiting professor at the University of the Arts in London. Her collections of poetry include Electrocuting the Baby, Phrasebook, and My Life Asleep, which won the Forward Poetry Prize for Best Collection. She has won the National Poetry Competition twice. Together with Matthew Sweeney, she edited an anthology of contemporary poetry in English, but gathered from around the world, entitled Emergency Kit, Poems for Strange Times. The Transformers, a collection of public lectures given by her as part of her professorship in Newcastle, was published in 2007. Please welcome Joe Shapcott. (laughs) 
problems with choices, and I think maybe poets are the most indecisive people I know. Perhaps we can discuss that later. Um, <laughs> and I think the reason is that in the world of the poem, you want to sustain possibility as long as possible. Mm -hmm. You want it to be open, um, and really possibility is suspended, like with the tension of a spider web in the poem, and not concluded like a stone dropping. So when I was invited to contribute a poem to a conference on uncertainty, I felt right at home. Um, it was a multidisciplinary conference of uh, people involved in risk and insurance, uh, mathematicians, and physicists. Um, in order to solve the problem of writing a poem for this conference, I turned uncertainty into a dog. Uncertainty is not a good dog. Uncertainty is not a good dog. She eats bracken and sheep shit, drops her litters in foxholes and rolls in all the variables, wriggling on her back until she reeks of them, until their scents are her scents. She takes sudden windy routes through hummocks, cairns and ditches, so you can't spot where she is and acknowledge her velocity at the same time. She's fidgety, but still careful to snuffle through all the mud on the trail. She can't see in the dark, but bumps her snout on the overhang, lapping the path. Daylight's no better. She has to screw her eyes tight against the glare, and, panting, just risk it, following her nose across the landscape, her tongue brighter than probability, brighter than heather, whimbery, and scree. An important choice for poets, and I think maybe for everything, is how you see things, whether you see them as up or down, as in this poem, which is called Of Mutability. Too many of the best cells in my body are itching, feeling jagged, turning raw in this spring chill. It's 2004, and I don't know a soul who doesn't feel small among the numbers, razor small. Look down these days to see your feet mistrust the pavement and your blood tests turn the doctor's expression grave. Look up to catch eclipses, gold leaf, comets, angels, chandeliers out of the corner of your eye. Join them if you like, learn astrophysics or learn folk song, human sacrifice, mortality, flying, fishing, sex without touching much. Don't trouble, though, to head anywhere but the sky. I came across a, an interesting little cul-de-sac of literature, which is about peeing. Um, and all the examples I found were by men, and they tended to involve that golden arc that they do. Um, <laughs> marking out territory, something like that. I don't know. And I, I suppose as a female, my choice is to um, worship in, in awe at the sight <laughs> or, or to claim my own territory. <laughs> this poem is called Piss Flower. I can't pretend to a golden parabola or to the downing of many pints for making magnificent water. I can't begin to write my name, no, not even my pet name, in the snow. 
except in pointless, unreadable script. But I can print a stream of bubbles into water with a velocity you'd have to call aesthetic. I can shoot down a jet stream so intense my body rises a full 40 feet and floats on a bubble stem of grace for just a few seconds up there in the urban air. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the next poem is about a kind of paralysis that um, you get when you don't make the choice, a kind of stasis. It's called For Summer. The lie is light over your heart. You will do nothing about it. The swallows are chattering around the house. All night you sweat it out, waiting for a breeze to collapse you like straw. You lay down in front of your door, your head pointing north, but none of the other cardinal points creep into your body. Your ears, loosened with olive oil, tune into difficult stars, loud and hot. Summer is going. You are already running into the first snowflake, mouth open to taste it, ready to ingest all the weathers. As we age, our choices contract. Um, my very, very old auntie is hurtling into dementia, and her choices are contracting all the time, particularly as she loses memory and language. Um, we've always talked a lot, and we still do. Uh, this poem marks a kind of conversation between us. The words are not what we say, but perhaps what we would say if we could. Somewhat unraveled. Auntie stands by the kettle, looking at the kettle, and says, help me, help me, where is the kettle? I say, little auntie, the curlicules and hopscotch grids unfurling in your brain have hidden it from you. Let me make you a cup of tea. She says, but I can still do my crossword, can't I? Not the difficult one, though, the one with the was name, cryptic clues, not that. I say, auntie, little auntie, we were never cryptic, so let's not start now. I appreciate your straight-on talk, the built-up toilet seats, the way you wish poetry were just my hobby, our cruises on the stair lift, your concern about my weight, the special seat in the bath. We know where we are. She says, Nurse told me I furniture walk around the house, holding onto it, I mean, and that it is good. Do I do that? I say, Little auntie, you are a plump armchair in flight, a kitchen table on a difficult hike without boots. You do the sideboard crawl like no one else. You are a sofa rumba. You go to sleep like a rug. She says, I don't like eating. Just as well, you've got a good appetite. I say, littlest auntie, my very little auntie, because she is shrinking now in front of me. Let me cook for you. A meal so wholesome and blimmin' pungent with garlic, you will dance on it and eat it through your feet. Then she says, don't you ever want to go to market 
and get lost in all the pots, knickers and random fabric? Mm -hmm. Don't you want to experiment with snow, hide out in drifts, see if you can cover your body with a layer only one snowflake thick? Don't you want to sell your, don't you want to sell your nail clippings online? She says, look at you with all your language. You never became the flower your mother wanted, but it's not too late. Come with me and rootle in the earth outside my front window. Set yourself in the special bed, the one only Wasname is allowed to garden, and we will practice opening and closing, and we'll follow the sun with our faces until the cows come home. The last poem I'm going to read is about the kind of choices we make as writers when writing. Um, I got to know a neuroscientist who was interested in cre creativity, and his idea about any kind of creativity was to do with a concept called latent inhibition. That is the ability to filter out all the irrelevant stimuli um, around you. And it's a very strong um, process that we have. Um, otherwise, if, if we absolutely apprehended everything around, we, we'd go mad. We couldn't, we couldn't assess everything at once. But he felt for creativity to happen, um, latent inhibition has to lift. New pathways have to be made. Composition. And I sat among the dust, sorry, composition. And I sat among the dust motes, my pencil sounding loud on the page, and a blast of sun hit a puddle, and a distant radio told the news. I saw a winter tree, and then eternity trembled, and my fingers smelled of garlic from before, and the window was smeary, the teacups wanted washing, and the gulf stream was slowing, and oh, my hips ached from sitting. My brain's not right, really. It's latent inhibition, so way out, that even a hangnail thrilled. I was drowning in possibility, while underneath the world an ice shelf collapsed into the sea and a cat with a white-tipped tail walked by and somewhere in my body the change cells gathered and my hair was damp on my neck and I prayed to be disturbed and hurricanos whirled and hissed. My nose itched, my ears hurt and then there was this. Thank you. try out and see whether these microphones work. Can everybody hear? <laughs> um, we're just going to, I'm just going to start off a little discussion and then we'll open it up to the floor and to, to you to ask our poets questions. Um, we've had an incredible richness of different kinds of choices uh, discussed and we've had all sorts of different views from John saying that uh, writing a poem is a continuous uh, process of choice to Joe saying that poets are the most indecisive people she knows. So um, I just want to sort of kick it off by asking each poet in turn what they regard as the most important choice they've made uh, that has impacted on their poetry and how it's impacted on their poetry specifically. Perhaps starting with John? Oh, what a difficult question. <laughs> um, the day I married my wife. <laughs> um, 
I, I really don't think there was any one single choice. Um, but I do remember very, very clearly um, when I was 19 and um, Robert Graves had come across to be professor of poetry at Oxford and um, the Observer, it's not a thing they would ever do now, printed 21 of Robert Graves' short lyrics on the um, first page of the, the review section. And I do remember thinking when I read those so much in so few memorable words, I think I want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and I just said it was a choice, but it certainly was a, a, a really kind of eureka moment in which I, I, I sort of knew that that was what I wanted to do. Before that, I think mainly at, uh, at school and so forth, I'd written stories and prose, but it was that economy of language matched lyricism, which was what I wanted to do. So that was a choice. Yeah. Mm. Jane? I, I think it's hard to isolate one choice because the choices you make in life, um, some of which you have no choice in, but the choices you do actually make are so interrelated, so complex, um, and you're making choices every minute of the day as well. Um, I, I, I guess if I needed to isolate um, two choices, and, and again, they're totally interrelated, would be um, marrying my husband and adopting our, our child. Well, yes, if you uh, discover anybody who wants to share your experience of life or your life and the way you're living it, and I, uh, you know, also like Jane and John would say, you know, when I met Margaret and discovered somebody who didn't mind being married to a poet, <laughs> who was an extraordinary person and uh, very tolerant and broad and that was for me a major decision uh, and that changed everything for me to think you had an ally for life mm -hmm. maybe um, yeah you know, um, yes I understand that entirely and that you were back and they would back you and support you so yes and Joe I don't know how many of these things are choices because a lot of serendipity comes into it and luck, a lot of luck and, and I feel that's true with many of the things that have happened to me uh, just to pick one out one thing out, though it could be many um, it's going to college in Ireland because it was like getting my ears rinsed or becoming a child again and, and learning English for the first time again it was a, a linguistic revolution of a wonderful kind. Um, just uh, following up on what uh, John just said, um, it almost sounds as if poetry chose you rather than you chose poetry. Is that, would, would, you, would you agree with that? Yeah. Um, unequivocally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't want to spend too much time, I want to open it up to the floor, but I did want to, uh, um, what intrigued me 
um, about a lot of the poems Jane read, that there was so much in terms of great political events, um, but uh, uh, sort of intersecting with personal choice. And uh, so, so the personal and the political seem to be interplaying there. Is that something that, that, that you just keep coming back to? I think um, with, with poetry, uh, when you write poetry, it has to come from a deep source, and you have to feel a real connection with the subject. And Or I feel I couldn't write unless I had that sort of legitimacy in a way, that sort of deep emotional connection. So, um, yes, they... The poems are linked to political events, but I have a very personal connection to those to those events. So um, the poem can sort of well up in the way poems should well up, rather than me sort of imposing a kind of interpretation on a on a political situation. Mm. And Robert, do do tell us more about what um, when when you making the choice of writing in English and writing in Welsh, that seems to be a theme that preoccupies you a lot. No, uh, no, I never had a choice. I was always an English language writer. My parents uh, spoke some Welsh, but it was all—it was only the only opportunity you had to write was in English. To write in any other language would have been absurd. But there is a country two hundred miles west of here called Wales where many writers where, where people are growing up now and they can uh, choose they can write in another language it's not the English language it's an older language of these islands and they have to decide they now are bilingual it's not that they can't speak English they have to choose and certain of them choose to write in a language that's only understood um, in a deep and a profound way by about 300,000 people. So that's a major decision mm. from a writer, a major decision. Uh, and that's happening all the time now. Mm. So um, we've got to be aware of that. Mm. Not, not just relating to the Welsh language, yes, to, to lots of it. Um, and Joe, you mentioned this conference about uncertainty with all sorts of different disciplines. That, that really intrigued me. Um, so, so that that obviously brought up the, the theme of choice, and, and you had certain choices in, in, in your readings there. Do, do tell us a bit more about that. Can I quickly just ask Robert something that follows do, on from what please, he's, yes, he's please, said please, first? Please, because um, just about translation generally, because because when you were reading the translation and talking about me, it, 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 talking about it, it struck me that um, the process of translation kind of contains more choices than anything we've discussed this evening, that every word opens sort of a thousand doors for you as the translator to choose what's right or how you can do justice to that original. Uh, yes, well if you're the writer in the language that's being translated from, you're putting your faith in the translator to show what you're doing in another a bigger language and also if you're the translator you want it to to compete with other English language work it's got to be as good it you try to make it better you've got so you take chances you take risks 
with the language you translate from. You can't copy that language. You're not copying it. Translation is not copying. You've got to make another piece of art. So you've got to think of music. Um, you might be taking the original poem in a different key or something like that. And um, but, but if you're translating from a minor language into a major language, as you are from Welsh into English, you're also taking a big risk. Because why would you bother to read the Welsh when everybody in Wales anyway reads English? So why would you bother? So why do you translate that language? Um, why aren't they... Why don't these bloody pesky Welsh poets translate, um, you know, composing Welsh to, um, in English to begin with? Um, because they can speak in English, so why don't they do that? Um, they don't want to be famous, they want to be honest to their roots. It's a major thing. Yeah, that's not a, you know, an answer, I'm sorry. But, yeah. <laughs> that's very interesting. It just struck me, my, my small experiences of translation are that almost every word has this heavy responsibility hanging onto it because it could be that, you know, it could be, could be tablecloth, it could be glass, it could be rug, or more, something more nuanced than that. And your decision, every word, is huge. Mm. Well, well, especially from a language that is a tiny language into the major global language, which is English. That's a big, big responsibility and uh, you've got to think about doing it and why you're doing it because the act of doing it might be hastening the demise of that language um, I'm conscious that there might be uh, many people here with questions from the floor would, I'd like to open it up to questions would, would anyone like to ask a question or lady in the front row there I think we have some roving mics has um, almost come to an end and I did ask Andrew Motion at the BBC Radio 4 book club when he was interviewed by Morty um, what you know what he thought about his laureateship and I, it was in reference to his poem The Dog and the Bridge The Dog and the Bridge End in his um, book Public Property because Tom Chivers who's the leading uh, you know British London poet told me that it is difficult to be a laureate. So what do you think of laureateship and who do you think is going to be the next laureate? The first um, point is that I, if I didn't say, or if, if I did say I shouldn't have, uh, that laureateship was coming to an end. I was doing a little his historical survey that went up to um, Alfred Austin, and incidentally, there was this four-year gap between um, the Tennyson's death and the new one, um, because the only two people in the running, apparently, were Swinburne and Morris, uh, and William Morris uh, decided that he didn't want to do it. Probably, it could well have been for political reasons in Morris's case. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've, uh, certainly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't guess 
wouldn't like to guess who the next laureate would, would, would be. It's certainly not going to be me. Um, but um, I think that the nature of the laureateship um, probably has changed um, very much. Well, first of all, by making it a 10-year appointment. It is going to be sort of, as I understand it now, a 10-year appointment. It's also become more of a civic um, responsibility now, and, and Andrew Motion has covered the waterfront, I think, in places that he's appeared and, and places he's given his, uh, his, his blessing to. Um, and I guess probably the challenge for the next poet laureate, whoever it is going to be, uh, will be to decide um, whether to, will he have it or she have a choice um, in um, keeping. So I certainly think it's moving away from um, the royal family, put it that way. Um, uh, it will become more of a, a Republican um, appointment, I, I suspect. But um, I don't know what others think. But who is going to be a happy clue? Does anyone of our other poets uh, want to comment on, on the laureateship or its changing role or, or want to gamble on who it might be? <laughs> <laughs> no. We had some other questions just now. Oh, wait, the gentleman up, up, up there on the yeah. uh, Thank you very much. Uh, I was just uh, curious if words uh, uh, go into the ether or if words are uh, gold, then can the panel just say a quick word? Um, regarding countries that they live in if um, the relationship with these countries are more important than perhaps I'm taking a stab at it, family relationships where they write and what they think and uh, their allegiance or alliances to a country or respective countries if that's um, of paramount importance or not. Thank you. So on the one hand words are wholesale on the other hand, they're very precious, and where these words are made, if um, it means more to be in a country as mistress or wife, that's all. Thank you. Not to labour the point. That's a very interesting question. Would, would, possibly, would Jane, would you like to say something on that? Maybe Jane or, or Robert? About, about the, it's about the allegiance, whether your, whether your language, you mean... Partially, your question. Would anyone else? 
Well, it's not as straightforward as that. It's very complicated, very messed up. Um, it, you know, it's not like um, there are fewer and fewer writers who can choose to write in Welsh as being the language of their soul or their imagination because everybody's becoming bilingual in Wales. Um, it was the fact until quite recently that in Welsh you would have to write in Welsh because that was the language of um, of your creative imagination but now um, those people are bilingual and they can choose to write in English or Welsh so it's up to them I personally I had no choice that was English for me but there are other people who can choose um, that's a process of erosion of the language and soon it will be a deliberate choice to write in Welsh whereas before it wasn't a deliberate